Hello, Minefield listener. Just a quick heads up that the following discussion contains a few adult themes, so please bear that in mind if there are any children listening. Hello, welcome to the Minefield. We're Lead Ali. My name is Scott Stevens. Is my co-host. We try to negotiate the ethical, moral dilemmas of modern life. Sometimes we have conversations before the show that yield extraordinary things. For example, I had just been informed that the devil uh, is married, uh, has a wife. I'd never heard this. Ex- it obviously hasn't made it into popular culture. It's quite an extraordinary thing to learn moments before you're about to go to air. But that, that's where I am. I'm a little rattled. <sighs> All right, Scott. What are we doing? Yeah. Look, we've done intermittently over the course of this year a number of episodes. I don't know about you, Elite. I've enjoyed, profited immensely, and learned tons from everyone. We've been doing a series of shows on what can broadly be called the moral emotions. And they're not moral emotions because the emotions themselves are moral. I think one would call, say, a passion for justice say, a moral emotion. Maybe one would even call love or a disposition to forgive or the quality of being patient or forbearing. Uh, these would be moral emotions insofar as they express, if you like, a moral trait, a moral disposition. That's not the moral emotions that we're talking about. The moral emotions we're discussing are those emotions that arise from, they are catalyzed by, a response to an event, an act, a state of affairs that might elicit a kind of judgment on that state of affairs. So you would say that anger may well emerge from someone being slighted or embarrassed or humiliated. Uh, You could say that resentment or even envy is an emotional response to a condition of overweening, pervasive, say, inequality. You might even say that um, anger or intemperance could be a proper response to necessary reforms that bring an unequal society closer and closer to a condition of justice or equality. You could say that a degree of impatience could be a moral emotion in response to things simply dragging way too long. I think one of the things about our time, and I don't think there's really any argument to be had with this, but we are swimming, we are living, we are breathing an air that is saturated by emotions. It's it's not that human life has ever not been determined by or characterized by emotions. But we are living in a time in which emotions form, I think, a degree, an aspect of of the way we speak to one another, the way we live together, the way that we try to impose our will or exact certain demands of one another. In other words, we live in a time where I think it's fair to say that the media has commodified emotions, um, social media. Can I, can I go further? Please. I would say that where emotions are taken as evidence of rightness. Yes, that's right. Um, so I think you see this especially with anger. Mm. Or even, you could probably add other examples. Even will lead a sign of moral seriousness. This is what we discussed with, with Christus Cholkus, the idea that if you're not angry at the moment, then you're simply not paying attention. Yeah. The moral seriousness aspect of it, yes. I suppose that's implicit in what I'm Mm, saying. But what what I mean to say is because someone is that angry, they're right. Mm. It's a very difficult thing to take someone who's angry and say, sorry, but I think you're wrong. To do that becomes almost a shameful act. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we we could get into an enormous socio-historical diagnosis of exactly why it's evolved to that point. But it is interesting that we've evolved to that point alongside a really interesting development, which is a sort of self-perception of everything, of our societies, our ways of doing things, or at least our own side of politics as being based in rationality. Hmm. It's just really interesting. It's almost like the claim of rationality licenses then the truthiness of my emotional Hmm. affectation. Hmm. And one of the things that we did discuss when we broached anger with Christos earlier this year, it struck me, I've thought about it intermittently over the last three decades, that in certain Semitic languages, anger is biologically or anatomically connected to the nose, to the face. Mm. And it's not just because anger shows up on the face, but anger has to do with a kind of assertion of the will of the person as expressed by a forceful, angry face onto the world. 
Um, anger becomes a mechanism of realizing one's will, of trying to impose oneself. And, or one could even say simply asserting oneself. I mean, anger is an assertive emotion. It, it seeks something. But I think this also gets us directly into one of our little problematic territories, which is that these emotions are often responses to an unjust state of affairs or to the experience of oneself being humiliated or embarrassed or slighted or something that one cares about being treated with disdain. To that extent, these emotions are, are legitimate. They're appropriate. But it seems to me, Willie, that what we've been trying to point out is in a time of, I think, a lack of reflectiveness about the nature of the emotions we express and what the expression of those emotions are doing to the conditions of our common life, feels like one of the things we've been doing over the three shows that we've discussed these topics is trying to hold up a kind of flag or a, a warning sign saying, I think we need to be a little bit more articulate about the emotions that we are so willing to indulge in. I think we need to be a little bit more cognizant of the dangers that they represent, of maybe the unintended consequences of the moral pitfalls that they bear along with them. For today, I feel like we're doing the opposite. In other words, all the emotions we've discussed so far are widely popular emotions, let's just put it that way. And you and I have been saying we need to be careful here. With today's emotion, I'll confess I've still got some real concerns about it, some profound questions, and I'm hoping that maybe you and our guests can enlighten me. But today it feels like we're taking the least popular or the most widely reviled moral emotion of them all, and we're trying to say, well, you know, there might actually be something to this. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know exactly why you're saying this. I also think the opposite. Oh, really? True. Well, yes, no, you're right. Of course, of course, you're okay. right. You're so right. Clearly no one has any idea what we're talking about right now. So do you want to just yeah, yeah, put sorry. them out of their misery? <laughs> this, is, this is all for the minefield striptease. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about shame. And there has been a kind of consensus building over the course of the last three decades, I'd say, that shame is almost always and almost under every circumstance a corrosive, corrupting, debilitating, demeaning, uh, destructive, and self-destructive emotion, that there are very few things that are worse than being made to feel shame or ashamed of oneself and by inflicting shame on somebody else. The the rationale usually goes something like this. When you're identifying someone's bad behavior, what you really want probably is you want them to recognize the bad that they've done. You want them maybe to acknowledge the bad that they've done. You want them to recant or repent from the bad that they've done, and you want them to move on with their lives. Uh, we could call that guilt. You could call it uh, self-knowledge or the recognition of the effects that one's you know activities have on other people. But as soon as you turn something into shame... One of the things that I, I just find so interesting is each one of these emotions really are connected. I was terribly grammatically bad then. Each one of these emotions is connected with a particular um, expression of the body, isn't it? And as soon as you think of shame, don't you think of someone hiding their face in their hands or shrinking away or, or behaving as though they just want to disappear or sink into the floor? There is something, I think, profoundly right in some respects, about when you feel shame, it's because people are looking at you and you don't want them to look at you. When you're Which feeling... is also why, why shame was used so effectively as a punishment. Yes, exactly right. right. Think of the stocks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's also why shame seems to focus everything, not so much on the actions of the person, but on the person as such. This is, this is the way that the particular explanation goes. So a more effective way is by trying to separate the person being shamed from whatever activity or disposition or, or habitual uh, quality gave rise to them needing to be shamed. Trying to separate the two, parse them apart so that you can then essentially separate the sin from the sinner. Where you say that in some ways... I mean, most people would have heard, I think, what I just said. They will have heard it from any number of pop psychologists or parenting experts. Well, and in popular discourse. And in popular you're discourse. You're shaming me. 
this is fat shaming. This is there's probably a million versions of it. That's right. It's immediately familiar, I think, to anyone who's been paying attention. But Waleed, take us to the contradiction. Well, the contradiction, I think, is <laughs> I love. I this. don't think I love this. we've lived in a time where shaming as a mode of doing politics mm. and of punishing people as a way of doing politics has been more popular. That's right. So we're so the way we express our political polarisation is effectively to shame those who transgress some kind of moral or political line that we've established. Mm. So what's really happening, I think, I think it it mirrors in some ways the move that the inculcation of liberalism has caused societies to make, where the idea of morality as something that might apply to people in reference to the way they act or their dispositions or their the state of their hearts, if you like, per se, that has been displaced via a kind of liberal revolution to being something that only has meaning in the context of causing harm to another. So in other words, that's a very convoluted way of saying something I could say much more simply. We find it very difficult to brand something immoral where we cannot immediately identify harm caused to another person. Mm. So the way we talk about morality is inherently liberal and thereby political. The idea of morality, a more comprehensive notion of morality doesn't really work, which is why we don't talk about things like virtues and vices Mm. anymore. You just sound antiquated the minute you talk about that, right? And I think the same thing has happened to shame. There's been a revolution against shame such that nothing that a person does in and of itself may be deemed shameful unless it has a political resonance. Mm, Very nice. And at that point we pour shame upon them Mm. because we're trying to prosecute some kind of public or political end. But when you say it has some kind of political resonance, what you're meaning is that uh, the activity that someone does, which then makes them an object of shame or an Mm. object of public shaming, is something that is doing active harm to other members of a political community. Or we just deem it so. Yeah. But whether, whether or not it is, the point is that that's the theoretical or conceptual move that has to be made before shame is enacted. Mm, That's right. Right. I don't shame you because you've done something that is... um, You're, say, privately immoral. Mm. Yeah. I shame you because even if it is privately immoral, I have to first deem it publicly immoral and then I can do it. So so to say shame has fallen out of favour is true as well as being the opposite. Yes. Can I just add something to that then? Yeah. We also notice that one of the undisputed vices in our time, I think, is the vice of being shameless. This is, uh, yeah, this is really uh, curious. Well, hang on, just, just think about it for a second. This is really curious to me. Just think about the wave of public sentiment that finally drove Boris Johnson from office. The charges over the last six months have been that this man is shameless. Think about the charges that were repeatedly laid against Donald Trump the way that he was universally described by his opponents is this man has no shame, which means there are no community expectations. There are no expectations connected to propriety, public morality, the particular moral vocation that pertains to a particular office, the particular morality that pertains to a a position of, say, high political leadership. None of those things make any demand on this person. None of those things can be heard by this person. This person responds to none of the forms of uh, professional or public pressure that would ordinarily bow someone into some degree of reluctant submission. These men are shameless. Though, right? So it becomes political in that way. So let's say we're not talking about Boris Johnson. Let's say we're talking about a private citizen who hosted parties during a lockdown. Would we, especially with this distance, mm. would we say the same of them? Yes. You think? I'm not so sure if, it's universal. If there, was, if there was an explosion of public anger. Oh, look, there yeah. are, of course, differences. We, we broached all of this. I mean, there, there was something about the Johnson government's enforcement of a degree of social conformity yeah. that his government then shamelessly flaunted. Actually, you know what? You've, you've actually helped me sharpen the point there. Sorry. The lockdown ones are a bad example because they are about public harm. Yeah, that's right. So it gets tricky. 
It does, but just think, think of the way that we use the term shameless. It usually means this person is impervious to, immune Yeah, but from. it's also becoming a badge of honor. It can be. It can be. Yeah. True. Okay. All right. Can we just, before we bring in our guest, can we try to delve down? <laughs> Did we just hit a wall? <laughs> no. No, we didn't. I'm just aware of the fact that we haven't gone anywhere near defining shame. Okay. All right. Go on. Um. Which is just to say that shame is a very difficult thing to define. <laughs> well, look, let's, let's begin, I think, with two fundamental points. The first is that shame has something to do with publicly or socially conferred reputation. So shame is not something that necessarily bubbles up inside oneself. Guilt might be, but shame has something to do with being seen by other people or by being regarded by other people as having done something wrong, something that breaches, say, accepted community norms, something, if, if one thinks about, say, um, a child saying something really aggressively disdainful towards their parent or towards a sibling or doing something that kind of breaches the etiquette of the family then it would be appropriate, say, to describe that child as you ought to feel shame. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Mm. So there is something about it's an external judgment that makes its way inwards. I think that's probably the best way of, of putting it. That's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, as we, I suspect, are going to talk about it great length. So it's an external judgment that makes its way inwards. To that extent, at its most minimal level, shame can, in fact, be horizontally oriented. In other words, it has to do with one's place within a society, within a community of people where their sanction, where their judgment that we have done something that crosses a certain line makes its way into us. In other words, a form of external judgment becomes a form of, of internal, say, conviction. All right? Hence the desire to, say, hide oneself from being seen by the communal line. Mm. Here's where things, though, while well, they get really, really tricky because the in ancient cultures, in the elder cultures of Asia Minor, for instance, shame is the flip side of honor. And honor is massively conferred public positive reputation. Honor is what one achieves by everybody else looking up to one. Um, honor is something objective. It's not something one gains for oneself. It only is gained through, yep. through recognition. That's right. It is conferred. Shame then is the opposite of that. So shame is when something fundamental to one's, and, and sorry, just for the, to that point about honor, when one acquires honor, I mean, you can't capture this. You, you can't read the Iliad or the Odyssey without capturing this vital sense. When one receives honor, one becomes a larger person. <laughs> you know, your, your mass, your stature become greater. You become greater by receiving honor. There's a majesty attached. There is a majesty, exactly right. Whereas shame is an act of diminution. When you are shamed, something fundamental is being taken away from you. You become less than and less so than. Aren't, aren't these all the arguments against the use of shame? Yes, that's right. Well, as a morally well, forming device? The second one mostly. If we think about shame primarily as a as a horizontal affect, something where the judgment of our peers, the judgment of the political community to which we belong, the judgment of the moral community to which we belong, like a family, for instance, or a marriage. You could say that that doesn't necessarily have the same stigma as it does when we think about shame as being vertically or hierarchically oriented. In other words, as soon as being shamed makes you less than, as soon as shame is used as a punishment to diminish you, and diminish you until you simply want to sink into the floor or want to ostracize yourself mm. or want to, you know, essentially turn in on yourself in a form of kind of self-destructive self-loathing. Then I think that's right. Shame becomes really, really problematic. Which, which is how it's being used politically. I think that's exactly right. Now, my question right. then, Waleed. Yeah. So there's no doubt historically that shame as the counterpoint to honor has a degree of that hierarchical dimension to it. It's vertically oriented. By being shamed, one becomes less than the other people around you. Hmm. There's no doubt that sort of etymologically, historically, that's the case. 
I would like to think that shame as a horizontal affect, where the judgment, the censure, the standards, the morality of the community to which I, to which I belong uh, becomes inculcated in me. It becomes my own. I think that's just another word for moral formation. My question is, in a time like ours, I actually I have two questions. In a time like ours, can shame be used in any other way than as a form of diminution, of making someone less and less and less until they sort of sink into the floor out of embarrassment and self-loathing? My second question is, is shame the right word to use in the first place? Because um, even though there's that historical, the undeniable historical connection, I mean, what's being described there? Sort of other people's gaze becoming part of the way that I see myself, other people's disgust becoming a form of disgust with myself, other people's negative judgment becoming something that I kind of, I imbibe and sort of embrace as my own. That's beginning to sound a lot like, say, self-contempt or self-loathing or self-disgust. So I'm, I'm wondering if it isn't best, if we really want to talk about shame as a form of legitimate moral formation, I'm wondering if it's best maybe to refine our language and to talk much more specifically about what it is that's so corrosive, that's so destructive, and why it is that we need to steer away from it. Yeah, see, my my concern with the way that, with the denunciation of shame hmm. is that I feel like it takes too promiscuous a definition of shame. Yeah, I think that's right. So it basically ends up, I think, conflating any kind of criticism hmm. or perhaps any observation that wishes to assert the propriety of something, mm. some kind of behaviour, the articulation of any kind of norm that isn't political in nature, it takes that as being an act of shaming. Yeah. Which means it's personal. Yeah, which perhaps, I mean, yeah, maybe I'll just walk further down this road <laughs> of what liberalism has done to our moral thinking. Perhaps that reflects the end point of what I regard as kind of the backlash against liberalism at the same time as it is a logical extension of it, and that is the sort of relentless prosecution of identity politics and the recategorization of everything as identity. So in other words, when I am criticised for something, the easiest way for me to turn that into an illegitimate form of shaming is to turn the basis on which I'm being criticised into an identity and then say you're attacking my identity. Hmm. Now, it is true that there are some forms of what you might call moral intervention that are shaming in an illegitimate sort of a way. That is, they are, well, to use a phrase, a word that's really top of mind for both of us at the moment, they become contemptuous. Hmm. Right? And I can easily see how this plays out on issues such as um, obesity. Mm, that's right. right. Where a discourse on fatness becomes a contemptuous one that seeks to establish the moral superiority of one who isn't fat over one who is, um, pays very little attention to a whole series of social and personal circumstances that might have led to that situation, etc. But I can also see the opposite extreme manifesting where what happens is by then turning fatness into an identity and a persecuted identity, it becomes impossible for certain often scientific objective facts to be stated yeah. without it becoming an act of shaming. Right? Nice. So maybe what we're talking about here ends up being a kind of crisis of civility, to use another really <laughs> unfashionable term, because the incivility, the sort of contempt that leads one to adopt a position as a, or a trait as an identity then breeds a kind of rejectionist response that wants to do away with any kind of possibility of moral interaction that isn't merely political. And then what you have is a contemptuous cycle. Whereas perhaps if notions of civility had been taken really seriously from the very beginning, we may not have ended up in that cycle. I'm not sure that's entirely an accurate counterfactual because I suspect there are other reasons we've ended up in that cycle of, of contempt. But um, nonetheless, I think there's something there worth bearing about that it was worth thinking about that there are a series of conceptual and theoretical leaps that go on in order for everybody involved in whatever relevant conversation we're talking about to end up taking hardened identity-based positions that make everything 
an act of shame or shaming. Mm. In which case, the very charge of being shamed becomes a defence mechanism. Yes, yeah. but one that brooks no response. That's right. That's exactly right. Beautifully put. So there, there can be no actual um, conversation that follows from that. It's tremendous that we have this guest with us. You know, Waleed, one of the unspeakable delights of doing what it is we do is that we get to actually speak to people we've been reading and admiring for years. And that's exactly what's happening here. Owen Flanagan is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Duke University. He's the author of what I truly believe is a stunningly important, especially in times like ours, piece of moral philosophy. It's called How to Do Things with Emotions, The Morality of Anger and Shame Across Cultures. Professor Flanagan, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you so much for inviting me, Scott and Waleed. It's been wonderful listening to your first uh, 20 minutes or so of this discussion. I can't wait to uh, get in, Well, which is now, I guess. <laughs> let's, yes. let's have at it. The fact that you, in your book, the fact that you try to raise a red flag about our use of anger and the fact that you try to rehabilitate something like shame as a form of moral education or moral formation. I mean, it's immediately endearing, but that's not where I think we should begin. One of the things that you point out, and it's something that Waleed and I have discussed off air many, many times, the West seems to be the only culture, if we can talk about the West as having a culture, in which shame is regarded as negative or deleterious or destructive. Um, why do you think that is? Uh, yeah, great, great question. Um, so um, one of the things I got really, one of the motivations behind the book, and I, I know we're going to focus on shame rather than other moral emotions, but I loved what you both you guys were saying up front, which is that there probably never, ever were times that we lived in which where people tried to only convince each other by rational persuasion. But it's pretty clear now that we uh, really think of, I think Waleed said this, that when we have emotional responses, uh, there's also a certain kind of entitlement and attitude towards our own emotional responses, whether it be anger or uh, shame or shaming, where we feel entitled to that emotion and that we must be right about something. So as you know, from a, a sort of a moral philosopher's point of view, especially if you do cross-cultural stuff, which is what I do, I was very, very aware of the fact that people's attitudes about when, for example, anger is justified or not justified vary dramatically across culture. Sometimes they vary inside cultures. And for every moral emotion, uh, you know, like anger, there are clearly forms of anger which are, well, well by the way, Anger and shame are both what we call negative emotions from a valence point of view. They just feel unpleasant. Um, I mean, they can feel good in certain circumstances and venting your anger, for example, can feel good, but they tend to not feel so good. You, you don't want to be in situations where you're angry or scared or ashamed or feeling guilty. Uh, they feel bad, but that doesn't mean they are bad, nor does it the fact that you feel anger mean that you're entitled to it or that you feel shame mean that it's warranted. So one thing I just wanted to say to connect the anger issue with the shame issue is that there are some kinds of anger which are perfectly uh, morally acceptable, possibly even required by this world. And that's anger about righteous anger, righteous indignation about injustice, about racism and sexism. But there are some kinds of anger uh, which are very widespread. One is uh, what Martha Nussbaum and I both call payback anger, where you hurt me and boy, you're going to pay for that. It's a quick revenge kind of anger. And then there's an even worse kind of anger, which is, I call it pain passing anger. This is just anger where I don't feel too good about myself. And because you're in my vicinity, I'm gonna make you feel bad too. I'm just gonna pass the pain to you. And both of those I think have really good arguments against them. The reason I bring those up is that very often what we call shaming and humiliation is due to anger. and just because shaming and humiliation are bad, because they usually just intend to produce pain in some other person, they often involve moral grandstanding yourself. Just because those are bad though, doesn't mean that shame itself is unwarranted or always a bad emotion. And what you're right about uh, in the question, of course, is that, oh, and one of the ways I got into this was, I was very aware because I teach both about Buddhism and Confucian philosophies. And in both cases, Shame is thought to be 
a very, very important emotion, as you put it a minute ago, Scott, of moral formation and development. And the idea, I'll speak more about Confucianism first, but one of the ideas there is that what happens in a moral community is that the elders indicate to the youth almost always, in fact, in anthropology, there's a view that all cultures use powerful socializing emotions, usually negative ones, to help form the youth. There are carrots, of course, but they're also usually sticks. And they vary whether people use anger, guilt, shame, etc. But the first point is that in the Confucian tradition, the idea is that the elders say things like my parents did to me, despite not being Confucian. I had five younger siblings. My parents would say to me, Owen, share that with Virginia. And at first I wouldn't comply, perhaps. And eventually um, I learned, though, that sharing toys and playing with another person is a lot of fun. So the idea of, and my parents might have well used the word, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But they weren't pointing me to my total self to hate or to loathe. They were pointing me to a certain disposition that as a, a child, a disposition of selfishness, I had. And what they were calling upon me to do is to learn the rewards of sharing so that eventually I internalized such rewards and I became the kind of person who shared. So this is very, very common across the world to think of the inculcation of values in children to require calling attention to their behavior and to dispositions they have, not necessarily calling them out on an act, which as you said earlier, is the usual way people focus on guilt, but sometimes it is calling them out on an act but it's often calling them out on a characteristic or trait or disposition of themselves that needs work. And the entire Confucian tradition, which is, as you say, one of many which prize certain types of shame, feelings of shame, as protection against doing the wrong thing, acknowledging um, the demands of your moral community. Um, the idea is eventually that it gets internalized and it becomes something like your conscience and something that regulates a mature person. Um, so mm. that's first pass. Yes, mm. it's a very much uh, the Western uh, weird countries, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic countries tend to have the view that uh, shame is among the worst emotions. Shame in the way that you've described it there is irrevocably and inextricably linked to some notion of vice, right? You, you can't have shame in the absence of vice. Otherwise, there's nothing about which to be ashamed. Certainly nothing that would point to a character flaw of any sort of description. And that made me think, coming to the last part of Scott's question, why have Western societies done this? Well, I don't know. Maybe this is just too quick a, a diagnosis and, and I'll overstate it. But Western society has, uh, it hasn't even gotten rid of the concept of vice. I think it's turned almost every vice into a virtue quite deliberately. So like name one, I mean, greed, greed is good. Yep. Lust, well, lust is repackaged as, as liberation. I don't know. Help me out here, Scott. Can you, can you think of vices? Um, there might be some, but I just, they don't rush to mind. But you think of vices that remain vices in Western culture. No. I mean, this is where I thought that I liked what you said. You both were suggesting before that you might want to say something like, oh, people, I mean, and this is part of my view, people have totally weaponized shame because you can weaponize any emotion and really do terrible things with it. There's no question about that. In examples you guys already gave, fat shaming, slut shaming, racist shaming, sexist shaming, those are all absolutely horrendous things. And they're, they're bad roughly in the same ways that pain passing and payback uh, anger are bad and for some of the same reasons. But it does seem to me, and this is why I felt one of the reasons I got into the interest in shame, besides that other cultures think if handled properly, <laughs> it can be a good thing, is that I also saw us living, as you guys indicated up front, in shameless times. Now, I think what do I mean by shameless? One idea would be, that in answer to your question, I suddenly saw a vice I never, ever expected to see in the 21st century. I didn't see it coming, but I could be naive. 
I didn't see complete disrespect for truthfulness, but it happened in America. It happened with Trump. It's happening in elections in various places in the country. People who have cynical and complete disregard for the truth. Admittedly, sometimes people are just fooled by falsehood, but there are some people, political actors, who have shameless disregard for the truth as a value. My students in the current generation, they do not know that there was an idea in America of my youth, which was the idea that politicians were public servants. They would be shocked if I had told them that. They don't see anyone's people like that. So these are things which I think are low-hanging fruit vices, which if we don't agree about things like commitment to truthfulness, working for the common good, basic minimalist principles of justice, honesty in speech, unless these values are continuously reaffirmed by the elder generations, the kids aren't going to get it and they're going to be modeling the wrong people. And then we all go down the tubes together. Even thinking there about truth, you've mentioned problems on, say, the conservative side of partisan politics and the way that truth has just disappeared. But truth as a notion, I don't think has ever been more contested on the progressive side, thanks to a postmodern turn. And you see this turn up in arguments where, well, we had this, uh, we did a show on this, a minefield on this, uh, was it two years ago, about the idea of meta arguments, <laughs> where the argument isn't about whether or not someone's point is true or untrue. The argument becomes, you shouldn't be making that point because it's harmful. So, and you see this play out at, at universities, right? So, um, places that are built as institutions of freedom of thought and contests of ideas and truth-seeking become places where the airing of... So, so that is to say institutions which by definition will be places of airing provocation and provocative argument and even offensive thoughts. That becomes rebadged as something that's unacceptable because of pain and harm. And that prevents a serious discussion of the truth or otherwise of the matter. Now, I'm not saying the people who make those claims are being insincere or somehow scandalous. Um, I can understand the, the intentions. I can understand the motivation that might be driving that sort of response. But it nonetheless means that the idea of holding up truth as the virtue and untruth or dishonesty or perhaps, I don't know, dissimulation as the vice, it, that, that's eroded there to some degree at the very least. And it becomes therefore a, a virtue, especially in polarised political times, it becomes a virtue to, I don't know, downplay or bury a particular truth in the service of the capital C cause. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you about the way things are trending. I guess, you know, what I would want to respond, in fact, I agree with you that on the left, postmodernism, uh, did cause some trouble, no doubt about it. <laughs> and on the right, uh, something else. But we're in an epistemic, a terrible epistemic situation. I guess, you know, what I would want to say, I do think there's delicacies in what one reveals or teaches because of antecedent views that people have and how they'll take certain information. But mm. unless we can count on mature adults tracking evidence and truth um, maybe all is lost. So I'm willing to take a stand. You know, let me just put it that way. I'm willing, to, even if it's a losing one, that there are certain um, values and, and they are not very, I mean, I, I don't even think we need to go to very complex contested ones. It's just simple things like following the evidence, keeping promises. If you go into politics, don't do it because you want power, do it because you want to be a public servant and things like this. And if you show sh shameless disregard for you know, the conventions of, as it were, a high office or a high responsibility, then I think you ought to feel ashamed of yourself. Now, even there, let me just say one thing uh, more about the question, uh, the questions that were asked at the very beginning. Why in the West is shame uh, thought to be so bad? And I have a speculative, although it's not too speculative, actually, I should give myself more credit. It's a, it's a fairly convincing to me and to other people who have heard me speak about this story. It goes like this. In point of fact, most North Americans, at least, I'd be interested if there's data on Australians, but most North Americans use shame and guilt synonymously. That's interesting, first of all, just in yeah. ordinary speech. People just don't distinguish them very well. 
Now, what is true is that in intellectual circles, people do distinguish them in ways that are not entirely clear. And by the way, the, the underlying psychology of, of shame, you guys were alluding to this, no one knows how to define it. It's not on the list of basic emotions, but then again, neither is guilt. Um, so the usual way people talk about it is that shame involves something like feeling scared, anxious, and sad. Some combination of those three more atomic feelings. Um, whereas guilt, at least one way that's analyzed by some good philosophers, is guilt is anger turned inward. So that's interesting about its underlying phenomenology, you might say, right? I mean, that tells you a little bit of what might be the difference people are getting at. There's also the point that Scott was making earlier about, at least in the Anglophone literature, actually also in French literature and Greco-Roman, anger is usually associated with being seen, like being seen tripping or being seen naked, you know, and surprised. However, in Confucian cultures, there's no association with being seen by others. It's associated with metaphors that have to do with reaching beyond some boundary that you shouldn't reach beyond. Actually, that also sounds like Genesis story of Adam and Eve, right? But, <laughs> but it's tactile kinesthetic. So it's complicated what it is. But here's the quick version of the story. When people come to talk about the really terrible kind of shame, they hit upon something which I think is truly terrible. But I think it's self-loathing and not shame. And here's, here's why I think that. There's a, a test, which is very, very famous test uh, in America, actually in the world. It's, been, it's one of these tests that's been well marketed. And it's uh, called the test of self-conscious emotions. Self-conscious affect, I think it's called, Tosca. And they ask questions like this. Um, you drove out of work, the radio station this morning, and you ran over a small animal crossing the road. You would think, one, I should pay more attention. Two, that effing animal crossed the road. Three, I'm a worthless piece of shit. Well, mm. the answer that I'm a worthless piece of shit is the shame answer. And that is, and so the same thing, if you fail a test, if you think you should have studied harder, that's a guilt answer. If you think you should have been paying more attention, that's the guilt answer. If you think I'm a failure as a student when you fail a test, that's the shame answer. But that's not, there's something wrong there because taking shame to be a complete devaluation of your entire self, everything about you is extremely rare and it's almost never the way shame shows up in any discourse that values shame. Go back again to my example of, you know, if an adult regularly lies, I think they should be ashamed of themselves. Do I, am I saying to them they're a worthless human being? No, I'm saying to them mm. that in the domain of truth telling, they violate all reasonable moral conventions and they really ought to change the way they are in that domain. I'm not saying anything about them in general. So, although notice that the cases of weaponized shame, like fat shaming or you know shaming about color of skin, those are where you take a characteristic of the person that's entirely unchangeable in certain cases, and you make that the focus of your enmity. And that is a terrible thing to do. But most shame doesn't do that. And so this test has been very, very influential in how pop psychology, talk shows, uh, the addiction industry, the eating disorder industry analyzes the causes in shame. And, it, and what they're right about is that self-loathing is terrible. And if people make you feel self-loathing, they should be ashamed of themselves. That's what I call turning the tables. But that's not shame. That's humiliation, you know, uh, treating people uh, in, with incredible disrespect. Oh, and I just wanted to finish with one lingering concern. So much of what the two of you have been talking about just resonates with me so deeply. I, I don't see how any meaningful process of moral formation can take place without an affective registering of the norms, the expectations, as well as the goodwill, let's put it that way, of the moral or political community to which one belongs. So the extent to which I come to feel internally the norms that are laid out for me externally or the norms that are even 
initially, transitionally imposed externally. I mean, that's just the way that moral formation takes place. Here's my concern. I don't see how shame can operate without some kind of hierarchy, even if it's a, let's call it a transitional hierarchy. So we, it's quite common in much of the philosophical literature surrounding shame to say, okay, you know, shame within a family, a parent telling a child, you should feel ashamed of yourself. That child is not concerned that the parent is going to exile the child or get rid of them altogether because of a minor indiscretion. Instead, shame there operates, the imposition of shame there operates as a way in which that child can, can grow more fully into the emotional and moral life of the family. But there's still a hierarchy there, the hierarchy that exists between the parent and the child. You could say that when, within certain forms of justice, especially uh, those forms of justice that aren't simply punitive but try to reintegrate uh, the young offender back into the community. There may well be a kind of shame that takes place, but it's, tra it's transitional. Uh, the punishment is a way of leading the person back into the full life of the community. I suppose I like the idea of horizontal shame, of someone growing up more fully into the expectations of the moral community to which one belongs. But what that takes is people, there's this description that John Stuart Mill gives of an ethical marriage where he says, in an ethical marriage, which has reached its ideal, both members of the couple will enjoy the great pleasure of looking variously up to one another in turn. And I kind of think that a healthy society ought to do that. We, there's some times where I might have to look up to someone, someone might have to look down at me, but it's, it's transitional. I'm just not sure that in a time like ours, where claims of moral superiority and communications of moral superiority have such political potency and such cultural force. I'm not sure that shame can do entirely without that hierarchical or that vertical dimension, which means that I'm not sure that we can entirely, entirely rid ourselves of some of the more deleterious aspects of shame, precisely because we simply refuse to either be looked down upon or to look up to others. Yeah, these are terrific insights and questions. I hear you. And it's related to something also the Walid was saying about liberalism. I mean, if, if liberalism just means that each and every one of us gets to follow our own muse, then, I mean, there's also, I have not only my aesthetic muses, but I maybe have my intellectual muses, but I also might have my moral muses. And of course, on some views of liberalism, that's exactly what is permitted. Each person can follow his or her own theory of good. So getting sort of communal leverage over us as individuals is complicated. I think that's, you know, especially true. I don't even know how to think about this, although I think about it every minute of every day. You know, what does it even mean? What communities am I part of in multicultural worlds like we live in? Many, many Australian cities, many American cities are just, there's so many cultures and subcultures, and sometimes people take identity in those communities. So you'll get a little bit of sort of, you know, assent to entering into a form of life and participating in it. But you're also saying that you don't want to participate in other nearby ones, whatever the other groups are doing. I get that. I don't have anything super duper helpful to say, but I want to suggest a different way of thinking about this that might be appealing to you if we can develop certain kinds of consensus about values, which is exactly what you're bringing into question. So here's the idea. Some people, you, know, you started out earlier saying, what's the difference between guilt and shame? And I've already said, you know, most ordinary speakers in North America don't, they use them as synonyms. However, when people theorize about them, they go exactly down the road that we're going tonight. That shame is a different emotion. It has different phenomenology. Anger turns inward. Uh, shame is some combination of feelings of anxiety, fear, uh, sadness. And the sadness, of course, comes from something you also pointed to, the possibility of social exclusion. That's really important. But to reframe the language of horizontal and vertical, let's think this way. What's the structure? The cultures that like guilt more than shame tend to be in the Abrahamic traditions. And if one reads about 
um, you know, very important philosophical treatises from Aquinas through Kant, one will see that conscience is thought to work through guilt and conscience is in touch with a punitive God, the Father. Um, so that's quite hierarchical, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, view where the sort of the judger is actually not even in this world. The, the judger is uh, a God who you'll answer to on Judgment Day. The interesting thing about shame, at least in some of its forms, is, and you've been emphasizing this, it's a very social emotion. I mean, in some cases, it picks on relatively low-level matters of etiquette. So we talk about people who are slobs because they don't ha know how to use chopsticks or they don't know how to use a knife and a fork and the food is on their chest and so on and so forth. So, you know, we sometimes think that it is shameful to have non-decorous sort of social habits, but that's not particularly interesting to me as a moral philosopher. What is interesting to me about at least the way that I think we could use shame, we could use more of shame in the modern world, going back to my idea of truthfulness and honesty and concern for the common good in political life, is that if we're demanding that, we're demanding that in multicultures where there's no shared religious view about how you ought to behave, as for example, in modern secular liberal democracies, but where there sure better be some values uh, that we settle on and some actions that we think and, and dispositions that we think are, are vicious and undermine you know, our collective human project. There might not be too many of those. I often think that there aren't too many of those, but um, at least you know, whatever common ones we could come up with, and they would include things like the regulation of the moral emotions themselves. I mean, you started out talking about all the different moral emotions. They would be that people ought to grow up in communities where there's social consensus that you ought to become a kind of person who expresses righteous anger for good causes, but not ordinary everyday ventilating anger just because you're entitled to your damn emotions. The TV shows tell you that. It should be where you have capacities to forgive people. It should be where you are have tendencies to want a more just society and where you're honest. And you know that's where I would start with the sort of few things that I hope that we can still agree on. But you guys make me worry that we don't even agree on those, so. Yeah, well, it's not so much we don't agree on them. I think it's that once you start then defining them, a just society or things like that, I worry you end up back where we are. But um, that's perfect, Owen, because it means that we have to spend a whole other hour talking about this at some other time, which is the best way to appear on the minefield. So congratulations, you've completely nailed it. Um, and thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom today. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you guys very much. And for staying up so late to talk to us, I should say that. Owen Flanagan is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Duke University. That's it from us now. You can follow the minefield on the ABC Listen app, where you can find previous episodes and other great podcasts from ABC RN. See you soon.